Workshop elves and naughty listers. Stand up on your tippy mistletoes. Beware the finger wagging of real world Scrooge, John Knox. And get ready for a rousing round of Find the Pickle. Boy, boy, you down there, you down there. What day's today? That's the day where we talk tall to me. <laughs> Welcome back, I am your present under the tree, Omen Thomas Sade. I'm that lump in the bottom of your stocking, Nick McGill. We are together, feckless momes. And this is Talk Tall to Me. A white elephant exchange gathered round the warm hearth of prog rock in which eggnog Nick and ornament Omen will shake, sniff, and peep into every gorgeously wrapped musical gift that ever-generous rock band Jethro Tull has ever laid beneath the befluted fir tree. We will carefully eat our slice of king's cake, hoping to find a tiny ceramic figure of Martin Barr inside. <laughs> After our Christmas feast, we will hide all the brooms so that naughty Jonathan Noyce can't cause his mischief. We will save Andrew Giddings from a life of selling his accordion on the streets by creeping down his chimney to fill his socks with gold pieces. And we will give Don Perry a new set of knickers to save him from being eaten by the gigantic Yule cat, Jolakurturin. And if we stay up too late, we may catch sight of the great Krampus of the North, his codpiece bulging with naughty children, his flute flails flagellating. Don't sit on his lap. It's Ian Anderson. That was supreme. There was a lot to fit in there. It was very good. I mean, we've got two more Christmas episodes. Don't spend it all in one place. I won't blow my Yule log all in one go. Are you familiar with the with the Icelandic Yule cat? I've never heard of the Yule cat. I know Krampus. I don't know the Yule cat. It's a cat larger than a house, and if you don't finish your chores and are thereby rewarded by getting a new set of clothes, it will come and eat you. Actually, this does sound vaguely familiar. Yeah. I fe- it feels like I've seen this in a cartoon before. Yeah, yeah. Nick, happy Yuletide season unto ye. Thank you so much. We're about two weeks out from the Christmas holiday. We are, uh, we're just under two weeks out to the winter solstice, and we are X number of days to whatever else anybody else celebrates, or zero days to I don't give a shit, which is cool too. <laughs> Wait, well, we're always zero days to I don't give a shit around here. But ho, 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 what that means for the podcast is that we are yet again dipping into that wonderful Christmas cake, the 2003 Jethro Tull Christmas Album. Just when you think you couldn't sell out, you make a Christmas album. And what a lovely Christmas album it is. It's actually... No, it really is, yeah. I was listening to it in preparation, and it was really getting me in the mood, I have to say. I know. When I when I need, like, serious comfort, even if it's in the middle of the summer, I will listen to Christmas music. Yeah. And that's one of the first ones that I go to because it kind of eases you in. It's not too saccharine. Some of the stuff is really depressing, but it's all really beautiful. You know, yes. (laughs) It's like the Jewish tradition of eating bitter herbs Mm. so that you can appreciate the sweet tastes. It's just a little bit of bitter herb in the Christmas album. So, Nick, what do we have the pleasure 
of listening to and then talking tall about this fine Tuesday. We have a doubleheader this week. We got two instrumentals, Pavane and Greensleeved, but we will begin with Pavane. Let's do that and let's have a listen to Pavane. There we have Pavane. How do you like that piece? Does it do it for you? Oh my gosh. I think you know the answer to that. I suspect we're getting a little bit of classic the McGill gush on this one. (laughs) My mascara's running, yeah. (laughs) I am a sucker for those, those instrumentals we know at this point. We do know. And boy howdy, does this not disappoint. It doesn't not disappoint. And the reason for it being so lovely is, is what? It is, it's haunting. Okay. It's dark. It is. It's slow and really just kind of encompasses you in a warm blanket. Uh Uh-huh, 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 uh-huh. Yeah, I agree with all of that. It's everybody, every, every single part can be heard. So it's fun jumping from where we kind of left off in the yeah. in the timeline, which was 1984, and we're jumping ahead almost 30 years. Yeah, let's see. Last year we jumped ahead 40 years, and the year the year before that we jumped ahead 50 years. Probably ballpark rough. We're but gaining. Yeah, on. I mean it's it's, but it's still it's still so jarring and. A lot of it has to do with the fact that these are Christmas songs versus, you know, whatever we're listening to at the time. But still, there's the band is different. The instrumentation is different. Ian's playing and composition is different. And the recording technique is different. So I think, oh, absolutely. You know, yeah. comparing Under Wraps to Christmas album, I get the sense that the the world of the digital landscape has mellowed. It's, it's matured. Mm. If in 1984, we were you know, in the young, boisterous digital era. Now, the digital format is finding its feet. We're really able to see the benefit of recording digitally, producing digitally, because everything is so freaking clean. It's crisp AF. Delightfully so. Maybe now that we are 20, almost 30 years past that, maybe a little too much clean. Hmm. Yeah, it does have kind of a hermetically sealed thing going on. Which, for a Christmas album, isn't bad. Yes. Very good point. Yeah, absolutely. But I think that 20 years later, we're now starting to get, you know, the the general swing is partly driving that resurgence of vinyl, that we want that warmer quality, we want the imperfections. Mm -hmm. So it's funny. It's funny how things go in cycles. But no, I mean, this, this piece played so beautifully, so crisply, it's like you just... It's like you you opened up a glacier and you you reached in and took out this track. Was was that word glacier? It was. Okay. <laughs> Some people say glacier. Is 
Are you, are you one of those some people? I'm not. I was trying it out, and now I'm embarrassed, and I'll never do it again. <laughs> and yet, I cannot get you to say nuclear. Hmm. I w- Interesting. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone has their cross to bear, Nick. Fair enough. Their nuclear cross. Before, before we jump into discussing the music, shall we discuss what is a pavain? Yes, I think we ought to. It is, it is fairly germane to the song. It's a germane pavain. Yeah. Oh, I didn't even realize I did that. So it's a dance, right? It is a dance. Yeah. Ian, all throughout the Tull catalog, sticks to, or kind of returns to that folk tradition of naming a song after a dance, mm-hmm. basically. Mm-hmm. So the Pavane was a slow dance. Mm-hmm. Couples dance. It was common in the 16th century in Europe. Uh, was very popular in Spain. I think that we hear some of that Spanish flair in this song. Mm, absolutely, yeah. The word is kind of a derivation of the word Padova. Oh, interesting. What we would call Padua yeah. in English. So the word, it means, if you say Padovana, it means of Padua in the same way that Bergamask means from Bergamo. Oh, I didn't know that. That's cool. A Bergamask is a dance from, is, you know, originally a dance, or at least nominally a dance from Bergamo. A pavane is a dance from Padova. Hmm. And it was typified by, it was usually paired with a galliard because the galliard was more robust, more fast, more more athletic, and the pavane was the slow dance. And it, the funny thing is about this is that it was typified by this very slow 2-2 two, two, or 4-4 four, four rhythm. One, mm-hmm. two, three, four, two, two, three, four. And the steps that went along with it were right foot, foot closes, left foot, foot closes. Mm. There is a trace of that dance in the modern era in the wedding processional. Oh, interesting. You know, when you go to a traditional wedding and you're part of the party and everyone's like, oh, we have to walk in this weird way that no one understands. Yeah. That goes back to the pavane stinking traditions i know but amazing that we have that kind of like what do they call that in clock fixing where it's like there's a little yeah you you leave a little mark in there it's basically a signature mark yeah either either on purpose or inadvertently and that kind of cues in later repairers to what's been done in there yeah i feel like that that appendix that vestigial dance step has survived through the centuries And it's very funny. Now, the very funny thing about what Ian has done with it, though. Wait, can I guess? It's in 3-4? You did it! I did it! Christmas miracle! (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, so there were were pavanes that existed in in 3-4 time, but they were much less common. Mm -hmm. He's taken this format, which is really supposed to be a slow 2-2, and he has put it into a 3-4 time signature. Now, what does that... What does that impart to the listener subconsciously, listening to a, a, a slow piece in 3-4 versus 4-4? Four, four? Does it make it seem not as slow? Is it like off kilter a little bit? Well, you know what we could do as an experiment to find out what it does to you? Is we could go back to the source material. Source material, oh. you say? Zap. So apparently, this is not just any pavain. This is Ian's adaptation of Gabriel Faure's pavain. 
Faure was a French composer, lived from 1845 to 1924, and he composed this piece, Pavain. Can you hear? One, two, 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 three, two, four, two. Yeah, that is pretty slow. It's very slow, but it's also, you can hear the difference in the time signature. Oh, absolutely, yeah. So what typifies the, the normal pavane is its solemnness. It was sometimes used as a, as a presenting song in courts. So you'd have all of the courtiers line up in this circle and they would process toward the royalty and then re- regress away from the royalty in this very yeah. slow, dignified. It was all about showing off the costume and all this. What Ian has done by putting it in 3-3 is he has swung it. I like it so much better. And I think, but the tempo is slower too, right? Yes, it is. So we could still drop the 3-4 to meet, the, meet that tempo. Mm-hmm. Right? Like, it's not literally just that it's 3-4-4-4. Four, four, four. No, but I think that the I think that the difference in time signature makes more of a difference in the listening experience than the, than the tempo. Mm, okay. Because even if it was 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, 1, 2, 3, 4, and mm. 1, 2, 3, 4, Ian's going... One two three, one two three, one da 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 da, ba dum ba dum ba dum da da da. That's almost the exact same tempo. Is that also a waltz? Is that in three? A waltz is in three. Okay. So yes, he's waltzified the pavane. That's very cool. I like it a lot. It's it's so pretty. I love what he did with it. It really works for the piece. Yes, I agree. It's and it's it's very cheeky. I think to take this traditional well this this classic piece that's based on a traditional dance format and fundamentally alter some distinct part of it. It's really cool. And he does, and on the same album, we see some other examples of that. Right, right. Absolutely, yeah. And so it's a little bit of a, a theme or a game within this Christmas album. Yeah, it's super, super lovely. It's very well done. I love, again, how how dark and eerie the sound is, the th- thump of the bass and the keyboards on some strange little setting. I don't quite know what it is. And then the drums come in and we get that soft cymbal. Which is how I was able to, to count the time oh, is because the... that symbol is consistent all the way through. Yeah. One, two, three, yeah. Then the absolutely stunning acoustic in there. So lovely. It's really cool. I was going to ask you about the guitar because I feel like I feel like there are two guitars being played. 
certain points there definitely are, yeah. When the guitar is like taking that solo in the yes, front, exactly. another one comes in. There's yeah. a finger picking guitar kind of that underlays the mm-hmm. whole thing. Yeah. And then we have the the melody, like you said, the lead guitar part over that. Still on acoustic, on a steel string. But mm-hmm. if I were to guess, I would say that maybe Ian is doing the finger picking backing guitar. And okay. Martin is playing the lead guitar on this. But it's not necessarily the case. It could be Ian on both. Right. Or Martin on both. Yeah. Yeah. It's difficult to know on some of these things, but I mean, generally we can, we fall back on the, the safe bets and they're usually right, but yeah, but yeah, it's, it's difficult to know, but it's regardless, they're both, they both work perfectly. It was very funny starting the track up and hearing the synth after all of our discussions about synth. Oh, I know. They're still, you know, 30 years after where we were, they're still using it. It's so much more subdued. It's not as rabid as under wraps synth is. Yes. Yeah, because again, it's it's had time to mellow. They've had time to figure out yeah. where does the listener's ear want the synth? Yeah. What is appropriate for this for this decade? They left it in a clay jar and buried it for 30 years. They did. That's how it develops that flavor. Yeah, it fermented and and it's really good. It's really mellowed out. It'll cure you of anything. Yes. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Probiotics out the ear. Put it in a soup. We also have mixed in the sound of organ and the sound of piano. Now, whether that's Andrew Giddings playing one super synth that has that he's just switching the settings really quick, uh-huh. or whether he has an organ, a synth, and a piano. Oh, yeah. To me, honestly, it, it feels like it's all synth. It all has that kind of, that just slightly synthetic sound, that feel to it. Yeah, I see what you mean. Although, I, for me, the piano sounds real. Hmm, interesting. But again, maybe it could just be that the setting is that good. Yeah, yeah. Also synthetic in here is our strings. I was going to ask about that. What? Do you, yeah, you think that's a, a synthetic, a synth setting? I 100% do, yeah. It's very lovely to hear strings, to go back to strings, particularly after after under wraps. It's no deep Palmer, but they're nice in here. They're really nice. They add to the mystique. They sweep. And I would love to hear, like, special guest deep Palmer on here. Now, there is a string quartet credited oh, really? to this album. But I, I agree. I don't think it's on that song. Oh, interesting. I, I I hope not to be proven wrong here. They really do feel synthetic. No, I agree. I 100% agree. We almost have to listen to the whole thing right now, which we won't. I will drop it in there. The entire album? The entire album. Yeah, and we can react fine. both ways to me being right and me being wrong. So as we progress through the Christmas album, Nick, we are going to see, we're going to make a mental note to ourselves mm-hmm. to pay our taxes. Yes. 
And if we remember to do that, we will have the ability to keep an eye out for the strings in this album because we won't be in jail. Correct. And I think we might have to revisit this question maybe just next week. From jail. From jail. So one thing we haven't mentioned yet is Ian's flute. Saving the best present for last, Nick. Yeah, it's haunting and it leads us... We're in kind of a winter snowscape. We'll, we'll cover winter snowscape as well. But we're kind of in this like snowy winter snowscape. Uh-huh. And we see nothing but pure, like pristine snow that hasn't been stepped in. And mm. the sound of Ian's flute guides us through the woods. It is a will-o'-the-wisp, basically. But an oral will-o'-the-wisp, a sonic. Yeah, yeah. We can just see Ian atop a snowy mountain. Yeah, he's leaping ethereally better than any human can. He's He's letting it go. (laughs) The cold never bothered him anyway. That's what I hear, yeah. Major casting error when they made that film. They really missed out on the opportunity to have Ian Anderson play Elsa. He was all lined up. Let it go! (laughs) (laughs) Actually, I would love to hear him sing that song. It'd be amazing. That would be absolutely insane. I would love it so much. I was having a thought about the flute and thinking about, you know, going all the way back to the beginning, the early days of Ian playing the flute. Mm -hmm. There's that sense of just sheer ballsy performativity. We kind of talked with Claire Holditch about this, how in the beginning he didn't really know how to play the flute, but it didn't matter because he was just sheer energy. Right, yeah. He was blasting it out to the audience. It It felt very external in a way. It felt very for our benefit, which was amazing. Yeah. This feels like he's going on an inward journey with the flute. Hmm. Yeah. And it's not just this song, right? Like, by at this point, he's there's so much more internalized. Yes. Yeah, and maybe this song is a, is a good example of it, more so than other pieces could be. But And I'm not suggesting that he's forgotten about the audience by any stretch right. of the imagination. But... <laughs> I do think that there is a there is an internal focus here and you really get a sense of not the character that he's performing through the flute, mm-hmm. but really a window into into his soul. I feel like the reason that, that that image of him on the snowy mountain is so appealing is because you really do feel like he's sharing some kind of internal fantasy with you. Yeah, right. I It feels like feels like we're privy to something. Mm-hmm. Ian could be could just have his eyes closed and be in the corner of the room just playing this song and we're just lucky enough to be able to experience it. Absolutely. Yeah. Yes. And and the rest of the band sets him up really well for that. There's kind of a a contemplative feel to the whole thing. Yeah. Which is appropriate to the spirit of Yuletide. It is a time when we must a look withinward to gauge our own good virtues i i don't know i didn't read the book (laughs) but also appropriate to the pavane because it is very it has this stately controlled uh i think for dances like that you have to have this incredible sense of of control on the inside Mm -hmm. in order to make it look elegant because otherwise you're just it looks like you're just doing a very simple stupid dance step 
Yeah, right. Because you are. I think the final thing to talk about is, is it about 20 after 1, we get that kind of the breakdown, the spicy breakdown that you were talking about. Yeah. The electro strings come in full force, and Mm -hmm. we get that Spanish-y sound with the guitar. If I'm honest, I don't really like it. Really? Yeah. I love to sink into the the songs that are just this beautiful and it pulls me out of it. I get why they do it. Yeah. It's amazing and it's perfect, but for me personally, for for how I utilize this song. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Mentally and personally, I prefer that darker diaphanous sound. But all in all, like it it, it all works. Like it's perfect. I don't think that it's a sore thumb here. No, and I think that, you know, the way that you the way that you want to use the song is perhaps I don't mean that you're using it wrong, but it is the danger of this kind of music that yeah. it can be so lulling. Yes. That you could put it on and forget about it because most people wouldn't really listen to it in the way that you listen to it. Most people would put it on, listen to it for 10 seconds, and then and then it becomes background music. Yeah. And so that quick change up I think helps to shock you out of that. I feel like we've had this exact discussion Probably back in maybe Stormwatch, maybe a little more recently. I don't remember, but I feel like we've had this same discussion talking about how they drop in the the, the more exciting bits. Exciting, for lack of a better term, you know, the, yes. the pieces that pick up pace to pull the listener back in. And, and I'm always listening, so. Right, right, right. But yeah. For you, it's like a shot of cold water in your bath. Yeah, exactly. I just want to fall asleep in the bath. <laughs> that is recommended. <laughs> I believe that the Spanishy sound that we are experiencing is is referred to as the Phrygian scale. Mm. I await correction from our listeners, but uh, it is used in flamenco music, Spanish guitar music. Often, it is in a major scale, but it starts whereas we would go bum 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 bum. They would start on the third note. Bum bum bum. Bum, 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 bum. I can't do it. I'm not a music major. Oh, I, I get what you're saying, though. But it has a yeah. different it has a different relation to itself. So it's the same notes, but it, it sounds different because of the starting point. And yeah. it, that's what gives it that Spanishy exotic feel to our, our Western ears. What's that called again? Phrygian. Phrygian. I would like to hear the Stygian scale. Is that a real thing? No. No, but oh. Stygian refers to sticks as in hell. Oh. Oh, man, come on. That is referenced many times in Dante, and the number of times that you have ever <laughs> referenced. Stygian. Interesting. Yeah, that's great. Yeah. There's also Super Phrygian. That is a real scale. I'm a Super Phrygian. Super Phrygian. I'm Super Phrygian. <laughs> <laughs> Let's dance our way out of this paper bag and dive into the next instrumental, the lovely green-sleeved 
past tense. Goodness me, that was a, a a funky little number. It was a nice follow up to Pavane, I would say. Yeah, 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 yeah. Just for reference, Pavane was track number nine. Greensleeved is track number eleven off of the Christmas album. Yeah, thank you for noting that. We're we're jumping around a little bit. Partly that's because next week we're going to cover First Snow on Brooklyn, aka the saddest song. Ever since Jacques Brel released Numikita Pa. Which is track number 10. That's the one that falls in between these two. Indeed. No doubt some of our listeners will be familiar with the origin of the song Greensleeves, or at least the purported origin. Correct, yeah. Do you recall? So supposedly, King Henry VIII, Mm -hmm. Hank Ocho, as I like to call him. You do like to call him that. Wrote this for his lover and future queen consort, Anne Boleyn future mother of the future queen of England, the OG Elizabeth, Elizabeth I, Ellie Uno, as I like to call her. <laughs> right, right, yeah. That's what you have her in is your in, in your phone. In my phone, yeah. that's what I have her in, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so a, a classic traditional tune from the Tudor era. Now there is some scholarly dispute as to whether or not, in fact, Henry VIII actually wrote that song, but... For our purposes, it doesn't really hurt us either way to say that he did or he didn't, and I like to think that he did. You, you close your ears for just a moment while I say that the piece is actually based on an Italian style of composition that didn't reach England until after Hank died, making it more likely an Elizabethan origin. I just got back, and I'm thrilled to say that I'm sure you were talking about how great Henry VIII was for composing this song. That's it. Thanks, Hank, for your contributions. Well, and what is probably the case is that he didn't necessarily come up with the tune or compose the tune. He probably wrote the lyrics that we know today. It's possible. Sure. Because that was much more in his wheelhouse. Yes, that's true. Yeah. Yeah, he did write other songs. It's not unheard of for him to have written songs. Pastimes with good company. Yeah, exactly. Which was King Henry's madrigal, if you will recall. I will recall. So the actual lyrics are the love song to Anne Boleyn, which apparently they have something to do with Anne Boleyn's rejections of his attempts at seduction, which leads to the line, cast me off discourteously. Mm-hmm. Because she was super smart. She saw the pattern of heads on pikes and decided... Goals. Maybe not. Maybe not. Or maybe. I mean, how how often can you turn down a king before you finally have to say... Mm. However many times... <laughs> yeah. However many times she did, I guess. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. So now we get into the, the what we are presented with by this wonderful band, Jethro Tull, uh, of whom we are so fond. Right. And this is used on the Christmas song because it's classical, just because the lyrics for the traditional green sleeves are not terribly Christmassy. There are other versions put to this song. That's right. The famous Christmas version, What Child Is This? Yeah. Is sung to the same tune, maybe with one slight change of of one of the notes. 
which is also about Anne Boleyn not <laughs> dating Jesus. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Exactly. What, chi- what child is this? Yeah. Now, I'm glad that we are covering these two songs, Pavane and Greensleeved, together, because it helps us solve a mathematical riddle. Ooh. I saw you counting along with Greensleeved. Did you, did you, this is the fun game where we ask, what time signature was that in? I wasn't paying too much attention. Any guesses? Is it an 8-4? Ooh, so close. Or is it 4-4? Four, four? It's just a fast... What is it? So, the original tune is in 6-8. Oh. Bum, bum, dun, dum, three, four, five, one, two, three, one, two, three, one, two, three, four, five, six, one, two, three, four, five, six, something like that. Ian has taken the one from Pavane and put it into Greensleeved, resulting in a 7-8 time signature. I never in a million years would have gotten that. <laughs> it is a really strange time signature. Funnily enough, I think we have the same time signature on Solstice Bells. Mmm. No, wait a minute. Seven Druids danced in seven time, right? Yeah. Yep. Yeah. Also Interesting. In seven. And that's what gives it that. I mean, again, sort of the theme with this album is taking songs that we recognize, taking tunes that we recognize, and progifying them. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So with. Pavane, we have this very familiar thing, which we swing by putting it into 3-4 rather than 4-4. And right. with Greensleeved, we take the tune that we, everybody knows and we add an extra beat to the measure, kind of putting it almost in between a waltz feeling that we are used to or a more common time 4-4 piece. And that's what gives it that... Yeah. Gives it that spicy feeling. Yeah, that's very that's very accurate. I've used it before, but there's a very funky feel to this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And there's a long tradition of, you know, the, the jazz cats getting the Christmas gig. Yeah. And taking the traditional song. And oh, we're going to play it with the jazz now. But th- this is sort of taking it a step further. And the old ladies get the vapors. Oh, yeah, they're playing jazz. Yes, exactly. When our generation are old ladies, they'll be getting the vapes. Yes, the vapes. Yeah. But yeah, I'm, I'm going to go back to funky. Like, what a funky tune. We get Ian flute immediately in the beginning this time. It comes to the forefront. It's the, yeah. it's the most brandy-soaked cherry on the, on the fruitcake <laughs> that is green-sleeved. And really hammering the funk nail... In the funk coffin is the bass. Like, it's so, so funky. Boom, 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 boom. Yeah. It's so prominent. Jonathan Noyce doing fantastic work on the bass. Yeah, he is crazy funky. Super fun. Very prominent. Makes it, he's the one that like seals the funk coffin with the funk nails. He just really makes it what it is. And it's great. A little layer of funk glue to make it airtight. Yeah, funk wood glue, just to be safe. Yeah, funk cock. I can't wait to be buried in my funk coffin. <laughs> There's just v- vibrating discs so you never stop moving. Eventually you turn to jelly. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, I guess that would happen anyway once you start to rot. But 
but more so in a vibrating <laughs> more coffin. So. Yeah, exactly. And we get the nice, fun beginning. And then we kind of go back into that Spanishy sound that we heard just the last track on Pavane. We get into that kind of flamenco-ish acoustic. Yes, we do. There's also... Martin Barr rips an electric mm. solo that yeah. really I was I was like oh this is Martin Barr's Carlos Santana moment. <laughs> to me, it was a little more Mark Knopfler. There was a touch of Knopfler. Yeah, I, I absolutely agree. But my sense of it was. You know, early 2000s, late 1990s Santana. Sure. Where it's just that kind of like bold, screaming. Yeah, I get it. I get it. But, I mean, any way you cut it, fantastic. And it's worth remembering this is the last Tull album on which Martin Barr plays. That is regrettably true. Pretty wild to think about. So we we get that flamenco sting, and then Ian comes back in with the flute, joined by the maraca. Uh, Why not? so good so fun then we keep kind of repeating and rotating the sounds and the instruments we get another slow bit where it's ian and then we get the really pretty picky guitar and then they this is one of the instances where they all go through and kind of give us the theme but it's played by each instrument yes exactly yeah 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 rotating through the like you said and then my favorite part of the breakdown is the the synth piano mm-hmm. is so lovely. And there's actually like rising organ in the back yeah. as well as he's like sweeping up and down. The organ just kind of crests as a wave. And it's it's this is my favorite part. It's so fun. It's so beautiful. And then we fall into the the last of the kind of wrap-up of that aside with just the bass, just Jonathan Noyce going super funk. Back in our regular episodes where we're just wrapping up under wraps, or have just wrapped up under wraps, I think we're really learning, you know, we're really getting the experience of we're getting the PJV experience and really r- learning how valuable the synth is to the band. Mm-hmm. And it's really cool to jump ahead 30 years and see how that role has has stayed and has progressed and developed. Yeah. You know, in the hands of a player like Giddings who can play not only anything that has keys, but also other things that have keys. <laughs> anything and other things. Yeah. <laughs> He plays the white ones and the black ones. (laughs) The synth has lost its novelty. You know, it's not so prominent. It doesn't have PJV backing it, who is novel to the band as well, who is also thinking in kind of 
other terms of the mm-hmm. instrumentation and the production, by this point, Tull is really cemented as Ian Anderson with the Jethro Tull band. And it feels comfortable. There's a level of... Oh, yeah. I'm not complaining. Y- yeah. And, and I think that one of the things that's so lovely about this album is that the music that they're playing is really complex. You know, I was just looking through the through the track listing and on the theme of things being played in key signatures that are not recommended. <laughs> not recommended. Not medically advised. We have Bring Out Solstice Bells, which is played in 7, 8. Yep. We have We Five Kings. Yep, which we will be talking about in two weeks. Guess what time signature that's played in. 7, 5. It's... <laughs> It's got a five in it. Oh, okay. 57. Uh, it's 57 <laughs> four time. Yep. Yep. Okay. And, and so they're doing all these things that are really complex and they're doing it with such a sense of, of relaxed precision hmm. that it tricks you into thinking that it's easy or simple. Yeah. There's so many layers and there's so many instruments playing and stuff. Like, you know, it's complex, but this is a sleeper prog album. You don't know that it's prog. And I bet I could probably get away with playing this to Raven. Or at least playing it in the car where she can't go anywhere. Mm, it's important to have a captive audience. <laughs> and I, I don't think she would terribly object to it because everything is so pretty and subtly complex. My goal is to break into the music room, the broadcast room of the local mall. Okay. And play the Jethro Tull Christmas album on a loop and then lock the door and super glue it shut. So Mariah Carey can't get a single play in that mall. Yeah. Grudge against Mariah. Yeah. That's the real war on Christmas. Oh, right at the end, Mm -hmm. with seconds left in overtime, in injury time in this song, (laughs) we get, and it's not a long song. It's only, it's like two minutes, 30 seconds. Yeah, just over two. We have a completely unnecessary, ridiculous key change. with 10 seconds to go in the song. It is the final thing that we hear right before the Jonathan Noyce bass wrap-up there at the end. Mm. That is wacky and fun, and maybe maybe that's kind of a ha-ha tee-hee, look at what we did, we snuck this one past you kind of thing. It's just the, yeah, it's like the extra decoration. It's like, all right, we've decorated the house. It looks yeah. great. It's tasteful. Cool. What if we put one more wreath? <laughs> What if I hang a series of smaller wreaths around this one wreath? <laughs> yeah, it's it's the exuberance of of celebration that leads yeah. you to something that's not necessary, but but why not? Little flair. That's a little flair. Yeah. <laughs> Nick, what do you think Henry VIII would have thought about this rendition of the song Greensleeves? I think he would want it to bear his air, <laughs> and and then he would cut its head off. Yeah, that's true. But while he was courting it and trying to produce progeny, I think he'd like it a lot. He would spend thousands of pounds trying to f*** this song. (laughs) Merry Christmas, everyone. (laughs) Yeah, it is worthy of that, I would say. There's a barony in Cheshire, which is the result of my erection. Oh, 
Coleman, you know what we are covering next week. I sure do, and I'm apprehensive about it. Are you? I am. Is it not one of the saddest songs known to man? You know, it is one of the saddest songs known to man, and, and it gives me the feels. Oh, it's so lovely. And unlike Katy Perry, I am afraid to catch feels. <laughs> is that a Katy Perry song? She features on it, yeah. Oh, features. It's a collab. I'm sure it is. Oh, yeah. It's Ferrer. It's, um... Ferrer Rocher? It's... <laughs> It's Calvin Harris, Pharrell Williams, and Katy Perry. Baby, I know you ain't scared to catch feels, feels with me. Next week, we are talking about First Snow on Brooklyn. And until then, whether you are from Padova or Bergamo, your money's still green to us. So dip into the holiday spirit and subscribe to our Patreon account for a mere $5 a month. That will get you the stocking stuffers of two extra podcasts per month and the joy of mankind, which is the community of Tall Skulls who exist on our Discord chat. Not only is your money green, but your sleeves, too, can be green. They can be red. They can be white. Wow. You can choose so many different colors for the Talk Tall to Me t-shirt that you're going to buy. The link to our Public page can be found in the show notes. Yeah. And supposedly King Henry liked green sleeves and supposedly he liked oh, right. Anne Boleyn. Mm-hmm. And supposedly you like Talk Tall to me, right? So if you like us, please do us a favor and rate and review us so others can like us too. Until next week, I am the future queen consort, Nick McGill. I am the highly decorated heeled shoe that you can see under my lifted skirt, Omen Thomas Said. This is Henry VIII's rejected lover, Talk Tall to Me. And we are a slow promenade backwards, Talk Tall to Me. Remember, if you wish, this is just a Christmas song. dream of you at night. I long for you by day. I'm no good with any other woman. I think of nothing but you. Of you and me playing dog and bitch. Of you and me playing horse and mare. Of you and me in every way. I want to fill you up night after night. I want to fill you up with sons. Bastards. They would be bastards.